If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So what happened? You went in and you saw him. When I entered, I heard Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Last time on The Immaculate Deception, I met Camille Balak, the journalist who managed to record the last ever in-depth interview with Dr. Jan Karbat. And I was like, what do you think, Mr. Karbat, about donor children who are now, you know, in their 20s, 30s? They are looking for their half-siblings, their donor fathers. And he was like, I just wanted one thing. Client pregnant, client happy, end of the story. Camille and Karbat talked for about an hour. They discussed the doctor's early career in Suriname and his glory days as one of the most celebrated fertility specialists in the Netherlands. And then, Karbat told Camille that he made some trips to the United States. He was like, I brought some sperm to San Francisco and Miami. The first time they stopped me, but the second time it was okay. In this episode, I'm going to try to find out what happened when Carbat brought his sperm to America. And I'm going to dive deeper into the jaw-dropping number of cases where other fertility doctors in the US, in Canada and beyond have abused their huge power over their patients and used their own sperm to make them pregnant. Because this is not the story of one rogue doctor. It's a phenomenon. By and large, it is a white male doctor practicing in the 70s and 80s. They tend to be community leaders. They tend to be religious figures. Doctor after doctor falls into this pattern. I'm Jenny Kleeman, and from something else, this is The Immaculate Deception. Episode 4, The American Connection. When Camille told me that Carbat had transported sperm from his clinic to the United States, it wasn't a complete surprise. I'd heard it before, from Marsha and Joey, the Carbat kids we met in episode one. They told me about things they discovered when they started trying to find out more about the doctor. Because we know that he delivered thousands of portions uh, in Miami. One time he got through with thousands of samples and the other time he was stopped at the border and had to destroy everything. And when I spoke to Inga Herlar, another Carbat kid, she mentioned it too. She'd seen him talking about it in old interviews. Well, he tells a kind of story that he was um, at the border, at the American border, with his um, cans, with the frozen sperm. And then he made some kind of statement like, ha 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 ha, I don't have to use that, I have enough of my own. And then he walked on. 
It's a great little story. But could it really be true? Because if it is true, and he really did take his own sperm to the US, that means there could be a whole new branch of the Carbat family tree in America. How would we go about finding American Carbat kids? Oh, we have this all, uh, all figured out. I asked Marsha about it when we met up together with her half-sister Inga one evening in Rotterdam. They had some ideas. We're going to have our own reality soap. (laughs) (laughs) The Carbestians. The Carbestians. (laughs) Then we go in a tour bus. Keeping up with the Carbestians. (laughs) It would be very funny. DNA tour bus. DNA tour bus. We're going to swap everybody. Oh my goodness! So, but there is a really serious side to all of this, which is that them, them. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm not. I mean, realistically, you might have, you know, this fifty whatever siblings could be the tip of the iceberg. While we work on getting keeping up with the Carbastians into production, okay, I've got her, and I'm going to patch her on through. We thought it was worth okay. trying some other leads. Hi, Jody. Can you hear me? Yes, perfectly. I called up Jody Madeira. She's a law professor at Indiana University and she's one of only a few experts worldwide who studied the phenomenon of fertility doctors inseminating patients with their own sperm. I've been told that Jan Karbat said that he transported his sperm samples outside the Netherlands abroad and specifically to the United States. Is that something you've heard about? Yes, I've heard that as well. I'm also not entirely sure what is known at this point. So I've heard that there have been various reports. You know, at one point he was stopped at customs and they seized the sperm. Another time he came through. It sounded like Jody had pretty much heard the same reports that I had. I've heard also that he had a client base of patients from the Middle East in the Netherlands. And that it may have been an attempt to get a donor who looked like them, essentially. What's interesting is he doesn't start locally. He goes quite some distance away. He goes to Miami, where there's a high Hispanic population, and I think that testifies to the culture of donation. In the Netherlands, in Europe, the reluctance to donate as compared to the States. Maybe we were just less likely to ask questions over here. So he had a client base of Middle Eastern people who were looking for Middle Eastern donors, and so he went looking for Hispanic donors. Right, because of the skin match, not because of the ethnic match. I'd heard that he, I mean, you mentioned it yourself, that he was stopped at customs. He was bringing sperm into the country, though. What do you know about that? I'm sort of mystified. I don't know what sperm he brought in. I don't know if it was his own sperm. I don't know if it was sperm from his donors. Given what you know about how he ran his business, do you think there is a chance that he was transporting his own sperm? Oh, I think there's every chance because from what I've heard, his business practices were just a mess. So do you think there could be children of Jan Kolbat living in the US at the moment? I do think there could be. And I think that um, the match would not be as clear because there's different tests that folks in Europe have done. And this is where the trail starts to go cold. Because the DNA databases Dutch people like to use tend to be different from the ones popular with Americans. I think they do ancestry. I think they do 23andMe. But I think also my heritage is quite common, whereas I don't think my heritage is that common in the US. The DNA databases then might not be comparing the data from different parts of the world. Exactly. To find out more, we'd need those different DNA databases to link up. But they're private databases run by private companies that currently aren't sharing their data with each other. 
Of course, another way of tracing Carbat's DNA in the US would be for one of his known biological children to enter their DNA into one of the American databases and see if they got a match. But none of the people I've met want to do that yet. I totally understand why. They're only just getting their heads around discovering their 60-odd Dutch siblings. Bringing yet more people into this story, from halfway across the world, is a huge responsibility. Jody can't tell us for sure if Carbat took his own sperm to the US. I don't think anyone can. But Jody can tell us about the other fertility doctors who, like Carbat, use their own sperm to inseminate their patients. She calls it fertility fraud. And that's what we're going to hear about next. I have found at least nine other doctors, apart from Carl Bat, where there is very strong evidence that they've fathered their patients' children. How many cases like this have you seen? I would say worldwide, we're probably up to over 30 at this point. Certainly in the United States, in Canada, in South Africa, Tokyo, Belgium, the Netherlands, UK, Germany. That is insane. Just listen to the headlines. Dr. Norman Barwin is accused of using his own sperm. Dr. Mortimer allegedly used his own sperm to impregnate her mother. Dr. Coates used his own genetic material instead of those read upon Dr. Donald Klein, who used his own specimen. Their father was the fertility doctor who used his own fresh sperm. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. How does someone come to be the world's leading expert in fertility fraud? It began when Jody Madeira was a fellow at Harvard Law School. I was focusing mostly on criminal law issues and, you know, victims' uh, experiences of crime. And then we had a miscarriage and I couldn't conceive, I wasn't ovulating. Jody says that for two years, her gynecologist told her she should just relax. But then finally, she got into fertility treatment and had triplets, and uh, it was a very difficult pregnancy, you know, 11 weeks on bed rest. But it introduced me to not only the bioethics and the legal aspects of assisted reproductive technology, but it also introduced me to a wealth of stereotypes such as, you know, desperate women uh, would do anything to conceive a child. When you first heard about these cases of doctor conception, fertility fraud, what did you think? What was your first reaction to learning that doctors could actually do this? Uh, yuck, um, ick. Uh, it led to a feeling of physical revulsion because I saw myself as a patient as potentially having been subject to this, you know, because the trust that you place in your doctor and the non-transparency of the procedure. I think that um, that feeling of physical disgust has, has remained with me for the duration of this project. And it's not against those who have been affected by it. Um, I think it's just the idea of the doctor who does this. A notorious case of this kind of doctor deception had emerged in Jody's home state of Indiana. In May 2015, 
there were these headlines that came out of Indianapolis that this physician, eminent physician, Donald Klein, who had been in People magazine, he had been well-loved. The news broke that he actually had used his own sperm in the 1970s and 1980s. He allegedly admitted to doing so at least 50 times at his medical office on West 86th Street. Klein was exposed after one of the people conceived at his clinic took a 23andMe DNA test, only to discover several unexpected half-siblings, whose mothers had all been Klein's patients. There ultimately was a core group of six to eight who were involved in this sort of quest to find out why they were all related. They somehow managed to convince Klein to meet with them. And he was a strange character at that meeting. He said... I did this seven to ten times, and they pushed him a little bit more, and he said, well, maybe I did it 50 times. Well, currently we're up to, I believe, um, between 66 and 70 siblings, um, doctor-conceived half-siblings. So that, again, was a lie. And for every sibling that exists, there will have been countless other times where it wasn't successful, the insemination, surely. Oh, yes, absolutely. But he also gave several reasons, such as that he performed abortions in the 1970s and was trying to atone for that. Um, He said he was trying to help desperate patients. And then he quoted this version of a Bible verse, I knew you in your mother's womb. By saying, I knew you in your mother's womb, Klein is literally putting himself in the position of God. In terms of other parallels, Norman Barwin was religious, wasn't he? But he was Jewish. He was. And he was this pillar of both the Jewish community in Ottawa and the arts community. And in fact, um, talk about eminent physicians. You're talking about a guy who was head of the Canadian Fertility Society. He had received, um, I believe, the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal, and he had received the Order of Canada. Like Carbat, Norman Barwin was first accused of chaotic record keeping, which led to women being given the wrong sperm by mistake. But in 2016, it emerged he'd been using his own sperm. Barwin doesn't deny this, and he's currently being sued by a group of his biological children and their legal mothers and fathers, his former patients. New cases of fertility fraud are emerging all the time. One of the most recent was in late 2019. October 31st, fittingly Halloween. That doctor... Paul Jones, was the go-to fertility specialist in Grand Junction, Colorado. He's alleged to have used his own sperm when giving women fertility treatment and then delivered the children he had helped them conceive. But before Jones, Barwin, Klein and before Carbat, the first case to really make headlines was that of Dr Cecil Jacobson in Virginia. Cecil Jacobson was really the first of this ilk. The man they called the Sperminator. To me, he was playing God. The coverage either sensationalised or sniggered at Jacobson's story. It inspired a 1993 book entitled Baby Maker, a TV documentary called The Sperminator, and even this Saturday Night Live sketch from 92. Raising 75 kids isn't easy, takes a lot of patience and a lot of love. All the sperm in the world couldn't tear us apart. It takes more than sperm, it takes heart when you're a sperm doctor. The sketch is a father who had 75 children running around the house. And it was, you know, a very short skit about how strange it was to have 75 children. We love you, Dad. Oh, why, you're the best kids any fertility doctor could ever trick his patients into having. But it sort of took it lightly. Cecil Jacobson was injecting HCG which is a pregnancy hormone, into women who in fact were not pregnant 
to produce pregnancy symptoms. He would give them ultrasounds and tell them that bowels or fecal matter were fetuses and so mislead them into thinking that they were pregnant. And then he would tell them about three months of pregnancy that their fetuses had passed and that they were no longer pregnant. That's grotesque. It is awful. And then it would start all over again. He would inject them with HCG again. And that was just the beginning of Jacobson's deception. It was only after Jacobson's patients, who had conceived supposedly through this anonymous sperm donor program that he ran, uh, agreed to genetic testing that showed that uh, he actually was biologically related to 15 children between 4 and 14, um, including patients who had only consented to insemination with their husband's sperm. It's thought he fathered 75 children in this way. What happened to Jacobson? He was actually tried criminally on the federal level for mail fraud, travel fraud, and wire fraud related to these false pregnancies, not for the illicit inseminations. Mail fraud, travel fraud, and wire fraud, that's all they could pin on Jacobson. Norman Barwin was the subject of a professional misconduct investigation in 2013. And he was barred from practicing medicine for two months. I mean, what is this going to do? The Canadian Medical Board reopened the investigation in 2016 when it emerged that he had been using his own sperm. His medical licence was officially revoked in 2019, five years after he'd retired. Donald Klein was never prosecuted for using his own sperm. Instead, he was charged with obstruction of justice because he lied about it. Klein received no jail time after pleading guilty to two felony counts of obstruction of justice. He also lost his licence to practice medicine. This was a devastating result for the generations of people left traumatised by what Klein had done. All of us, though, I think felt that that wasn't really enough for the future. If this happens again, no one should have to settle for that. Despite so many cases and so many mothers, fathers and children desperate to see justice done, no fertility doctor has ever been put behind bars for using their own sperm. Why is getting justice for the people involved in this so difficult? The first reason comes from these individuals themselves, the former patients and the individuals who are doctor-conceived. If you look at the culture of sperm donation back in the 80s, not only is it very stigmatizing and shameful to say, you know, this happened to me, what they do is in coming forward, exposes them to charges that they want book deals, that they're greedy, that they want money, right? When all they want is just accountability. There's nothing that could ever compensate them or make them whole from this discovery. This this idea that the guy who deceived them, his blood is literally running through their veins, right? That his sperm was inside their most intimate parts. And then, even when they have taken the brave step to seek justice... They have to be able to make a case that a crime has been committed, that laws have been broken. It's one of the only examples that I can think of where you have such this gut instinct where this conduct is grotesque, and then you ask people why. And, you know, it's, I think, perhaps most obvious for the female patients who were deceived, who um, had this guy's sperm inside them and did not know it. Still... The women did consent to the procedure, just not the specific genetic material that was put inside them. It's not a simple argument to make in court. But the claims of the doctor-conceived children and the claims of the husbands who also were defrauded are more difficult to pin down. They, too, have been violated 
and robbed. But what has been taken from them? Jodie has been doing what she can to help victims get new laws enshrined across America. After Donald Klein, fertility fraud is now a criminal offence in the state of Indiana. Right now, she's involved with a case that is breaking new ground in the state of Texas. It's the case in which I've been most personally involved to date. Um, So in a lot of these other cases, I've talked to lawyers, I've certainly interviewed uh, doctor-conceived individuals and their parents. Um, But this one, I've actually got gotten involved in accountability proceedings as well. So in February of 2019, I was matched up with a woman named Eve Wiley. Here we go. Hello, hello. Hello, is that Eve? And Eve is a very determined, very eloquent, very organized woman who was conceived uh, through the sperm of Dr. Kim McMorris. Hello, is that Eve? It is. It's Jenny Kleeman here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm Eve Wiley is from Dallas. She's 32, and she's known she was donor-conceived ever since she was 16. You know, all I've ever wanted growing up was to know what it was like to have a, a biological father. When Eve found the man she thought was her donor father, donor 106, the man her mother had specifically selected, she formed a strong bond with him. I call him dad, we say I love you. He officiated my wedding, my kids call him papa. So very much this father-daughter relationship. But a couple of years ago, she took a commercial DNA test and discovered that her biological father was not donor 106 after all, but her mother's fertility doctor, Dr. Kim McMorris. So how did you feel finding that out? Oh man, um... I shocked, (laughs) very, very shocked. You know, I had this wonderful, happy story with, you know, a fairy tale ending. And, you know, I I thought that I knew my genetic identity. And then it was replaced with so much deception around my conception. Eve wanted the doctor held to account. So she called a friend who was a lawyer. Because I wanted to know, you know, what, what am I up against here? I needed as much information as possible through talking to that attorney, I just could not believe that this was not a crime. But not only was this not a crime, there was not a civil cause of action. And not even the Texas Medical Board could take action against this doctor because of a sunset bill that they put into place um, a few years prior stating that they would not investigate claims that were older than seven years. Well, this happened 33 years ago. The more it sounded like McMorris was going to get away with everything, the more Eve got angry. For me, it felt like such a huge, not only an ethical violation, but how is this not a crime? Eve was determined to find a way to change the law. She did some research, made some calls. And um, ultimately ended up with a lobbying group in Austin who graciously took me on. Once a week, for three months, she drove for three and a half hours from Dallas to Austin. So I'd leave at 5 o'clock in the morning and get home at about 11 or 12 at night. And I would meet with legislators, legislative aides, any kind of office, um, tell them my story. So a lot of people really connected with this need for an understanding of genetic identity. It felt very clear that that a crime had been committed, but this was just the perfect example of the law being 30 years behind technology. When Joan Huffman, a senator from Houston, heard about Eve's story, she was determined to classify what happened to Eve's mother 
as a form of sexual assault. She wanted to include the sexual assault component to this. And, you know, when I've talked to other victims and, you know, especially my mom, these women, they feel like they've been medically raped. Um, Especially when you think about the circumstances of what artificial insemination is, knowing that sperm can only live outside of the body for 30 minutes. So just how this act had to have taken place, these doctors doing this under a state of arousal. Even her mother appeared in front of the Texas Senate to try and get a bill passed that would mean doctor insemination was viewed in law as sexual assault. So my mother's fertility doctor decided to use his own sperm instead of the sperm donor that my parents selected, consented to, and did this without their consent and without their knowledge. The bill was unanimously approved in the Texas State Senate in April 2019. Um, And then the governor signed it in June of 2019. Her law basically says it is sex assault to conduct illicit inseminations in Texas. And this actually carries a registration, a sex offender registration requirement. So that is a very strong statement that this conduct is not only wrong, but that it does have these sexual connotations for the former patients uh, in particular. And for the individuals who are doctor conceived, it's like being conceived through rape. And I just really felt like this was the purpose of my pain. We need more regulations and more attention around how unregulated this fertility industry is at a clinic level. We are creating human life here. I mean, our our nail salons are more regulated. Eve has been described as the Erin Brockovich of doctor insemination. Without her determination, fertility doctors in Texas would still be free to use their own sperm without their patient's knowledge or consent. McMorris is still practicing, isn't he? He is. He is still practicing today. Um, He's practicing with his son. So after the the law passed in uh, the spring of 2019, I said to Eve, can we get this guy's license taken away because we can't sue? And she said, well, I... I've always been willing to pursue changes, not charges, but this guy should not be practicing. And so I reported him to the Texas Medical Board. The Medical Board is currently investigating Kim McMorris. He didn't respond to our requests for comment from him. In the past, McMorris' lawyer told ABC News in a letter that Dr. McMorris is, quote, a good and fine man who is an excellent, well-respected OBGYN. He has a reputation for trying to help his patients as much as he possibly can. He also pointed out that there is no law that requires disclosure of donor identity, even if the donor is her physician. Have you contacted McMorris? What what interaction have you had with him? Yes, I have. So we've strictly had written communication and I initially sent him a letter explaining who I was and that I believe that he was my biological father and asking for medical records. And he responded. And, you know, over the course of that communication, he changed his story over and over again. And at the end of it, I had decided to move forward and to start legislation um, in Texas. I invited him to, you know, hey, if this was a thinking at the time and this was wrong, then let's work together to make this right. And that was not something that he was interested in. With so many different instances of doctor insemination, fertility fraud, medical rape, whatever this grave injustice is, is it possible to understand why they did it? 
What motivated Carbat, McMorris, Klein, Jacobson and all the rest? Why do you think these doctors do it? No one's actually asked these doctors why they did it and received a convincing answer. Doctors have said, I did it to help desperate patients, but there's other ways to help desperate patients and you can help just by treating them in a respectable and ethical fashion. You have a business reason, which is that it's sort of easier, people are lazy or donors don't show up. Then there are the darker reasons, such as the doctors believe that they have great genetics and that the world would benefit from more of their children in it. Or you have a more narcissistic condition, not just an ego, but actually a narcissistic pathological condition. Or you have other reasons that are more akin to the reasons why individuals rape. Power, the desire to insert oneself into a person's life in completely unorthodox ways. Do these doctors hate women, have contempt for women? I don't necessarily think they hated women. Um, I do think they must have had a particular conception of women and a particular conception of men, for that matter, or fatherhood. And I, I think that they had a certain conception of their own role as a medical provider. So you cannot engage in illicit insemination without believing that doctor knows best. But it's possible that, that that some doctors got a kick out of it. Absolutely. And, you know, or even did it to fulfill some deep-seated psychological need. And that is when I think one turns to the darker reasons. And I would say that the Carbat case, the record-keeping is indicative of a lot of problems. And In what it, way? He could not run a business. But authorities stepped in, in in the Carbat case at an earlier point and, in fact, took over the clinic because Carbat would not stop practicing. Um, so there are several red flags there. There's the inability, not just the inability to stop using your own sperm, but there's this inability to stop practicing, right? He, and he was in his late 70s when the clinic yes. was shut. So, he, you know, he was clearly of retirement age. Oh, yes, which raises all kinds. Retire. Right. Which he was, and he had been told to retire and he had been told to stop practicing because he was dangerous. He was endangering his patients and he could not stop. I mean, it's not that he could not stop. He did not stop. He willfully did not stop. there's still a vital set of voices we haven't heard from yet. What does it feel like to discover that the child you grew inside you and nurtured for years was the child of your fertility doctor? What's it like for the women whose lives Carbat inserted himself into in such an outrageous way? Paul and I were scratching our heads trying to find a mother who would share her story with us. When I started looking into this story, I was just so sure we'd be able to find mothers who would talk about it. It just seemed so obvious. Such an egregious thing has happened to them. Um, And there are so many of them. One of those mothers must want to share their experiences. Everybody that we've come across, we've, we've asked, are there any mothers who might like to speak to us? And we've had some real trouble finding people. And there are all sorts of reasons why that 
might be. I think part of it's the language barrier. But I also get the sense that this culture of secrecy and shame goes very, very deep. And a lot of the parents just really don't want to talk at all. Do you think there's something, there's so much pain involved in revisiting those memories of going to the clinic? Finding out decades later that something had gone wrong, that's very disorientating for them. Yeah. You must be very conflicted as a mother. In one respect, you must feel that um, to wish for anything to be different, to feel like you've been wronged, is to somehow say that you don't want the child that you have. You can't do that. I mean, you can't... Things are the way they are. Um, and you've got the family, you've got the baby that you, you so desperately wanted, even though it's not the baby that you agreed to have. We started to go back through our old contacts. Another call. Let me just see how many... When did I message him last? Nothing. Shall I drop him another line? Let's give it a try. We'd made lists of all the people we knew who'd been conceived at the clinic. Marsha, Martijn, Joey, Monique, Meryl Lotta. Giacchino is not a Carbat kid. Okay. There are so many of these Carbat kids that you can, you can kind of lose track of who you've tried. <laughs> it might not exist. Ah, back to the drawing board. And then... A name jumped out at us. One of the more recent additions to the family of 60-something Carbat kids. Is there Peter there? Peter Leifheber is one. Yes, I recognise him from the photograph. That is definitely a Carbat child. Let me just have a look at some. Yeah, I recognise him. Wow. He goes to the gym. Could mention him. Shall I try him? Yeah, let's try about a week later, I was cooking my kids' dinner when a notification popped up on my phone. Peter had replied to my Facebook message. We swapped numbers and Paul phoned him. They spoke for about half an hour. And then Peter sent us a number for Lydia, his mother. Next time, Lydia's story. He called me and he was crying. He said, Mom, my donor is Karwaats. I hear it. I think, oh my God. The Immaculate Deception is a Something Else production. It's written and presented by me, Jenny Kleeman. Paul Smith is the producer, with additional production from Arlie Adlington. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Magda Saron, Dan Cocker, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. If you identify with any of the issues we're reporting on, or maybe you know something about Carbat's American connection, our email address is deception at somethingelse.com. <laughs>